in the importance and the emphasis uh, in growth as Christians, both especially individually, but as a unit, as a community, we want to mature, we want to grow up in Christ, but individually, it has to start on an individual level. I see our growth and maturing in Christ, both individually and collectively, as being of utmost importance, exceeded only by our calling as a congregation and as individuals to glorify God in everything that we do, to glorify God and to edify the body of Christ, the church. These are our two purposes. These are our two primary purposes, and they are great. In fact, this was the subject that we discussed just a couple passages back a couple weeks ago, the importance of growing up in Christ. Back in our study of 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, we saw that there are spiritual infants, and there are spiritual young men, and there are spiritual fathers. And of course, all of this is somewhat subjective, depending on how you view yourself, I guess. Uh, for the most part, that's how we could summarize it, but it's really all addressed to the entire church. And so even though we're at different points in this huge spectrum of growth as Christians, even though we're all at different points in our maturity and in our journey of sanctification, we're still like one big family of orphans, all of whom have been adopted by the family, uh, by, by God into his family. But whether you're young or old in a physical sense... There are certain things that you will need in order for you to grow uh, in a healthy way. You need nutrition, for example. You need hydration. You need air. Uh, You need sleep, for example. All these things. You need every single one of these things in order to grow, in order to survive. What would happen if you were to just minimize one of these things that you need to survive physically? There's no question you you couldn't grow uh, as well as you could if you were not to minimize these things. In fact, the more you minimize these things, the more your health would certainly suffer. Now, what would happen if you were to completely remove one of these things that you need to survive physically? You would die. Just to be clear, don't try it. You will die. If If you take out just one of these things, try not breathing for five minutes. God designed us beautifully so that you can't do that, actually. You'll pass out and you'll start breathing again. Uh, But people do starve themselves. People do uh, become dehydrated to the point of death. Uh, Yeah, you take away just one of these things and we die. And one of the things that I have preached over and over again, at least for the past year and recent years, is that as Christians, there are three main things that we need in order to sustain our growth and our spiritual life. You might call them three, uh, three lifelines of, of Christianity. The first is spending time with God. That is, spending time uh, in prayer on a regular basis. Uh, the second is spending time in God's Word. That means studying his word, uh, reading it, studying it, memorizing it. And the third is spending time with God's people. Spending time with God in prayer, spending time in God's word in study, spending time with God's people in community. The reality is you cannot grow as a Christian and you cannot be a healthy Christian, if you try to remove just one of these three sources of spiritual uh, nutrition or sustenance, 
And trust me, there are plenty of people who have tried, and they've all failed. You have to have these three things in your life to be a healthy, maturing, growing Christian. And there's a great amount of concern these days about people, especially young people in particular, and the rate at which they are just cutting out that third one. The rate at which they're forsaking the church, just walking away from the church and, at least so far, not coming back. Essentially depriving themselves of that that third spiritual lifeline. And the statistics are indeed pretty startling. They're pretty alarming, at least on the surface. Uh, Roughly three out of every four people who graduate from high school stop coming to church within a year after their graduation. Those of you who just graduated last week, remember that. And I would urge you not to be part of that statistic. Now, I have theories about why, why these statistics are even there to begin with, why uh, three out of four people, when they graduate high school, within a year they stop coming back. But the real question is, for us, how are we to, to deal with them? How are we to, to view those who walk away from the church and we don't see any hope of them coming back into our fellowship, into our midst. And so today we're going to be continuing in our study of 1 John, and we're going to see John finally begin to discuss, to to touch on these Gnostic teachers who had infiltrated the ranks of the church that John is writing to, and they, they had filled these Christians with doubt, they had filled them with despair, and then they just walked away. And left them high and dry. And the term for their action, by the way, is apostasy. That is, they're they're walking away from the faith. Now, in the previous passage, John warned us to avoid the temptation to love the world and the things that are in the world. And it was essentially, if you were to boil it down, it's it's essentially a, a warning against living for the things of this life in accordance with the values of the world, which are entirely opposite the values of God. And we saw that one of the problems that our culture is currently facing, but it's really always faced, is the idol of self-esteem and self-image. And we discussed the insanity that worshiping this idol brings our culture to and how it's playing out right now in our culture. But really, if you were to think about it, the desire to be something other than we are is not something new. In fact, is that not what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? They desired to be something that they weren't. They desired to be something that reality would not grant. They desired to be God. And so they tried to adjust reality accordingly. They tried to adjust reality in accordance with their desires. By the way, it it didn't turn out too good, did it? Trying to adjust reality to fit our desires never does. The frightening thing is that the church is not immune to this type of thing. People wanting or pretending to be something that in actuality, in reality, they are not. The church has never been immune from this. And Jesus even knew that the church wouldn't be immune from this. He warned us that there would be tares among the wheat, and he warned us about how difficult or maybe even impossible it would be to distinguish real Christians from fake ones. 
And it's entirely possible, I believe, for a, a proverbial tear to actually believe themselves to be wheat. But the book of 1 John can be boiled down really to a series of litmus tests uh, by which we learn some of the key differences between true and false Christianity. Now, the last thing that John told us in the previous passage was that whoever does the will of God abides forever. What about those who don't abide forever? John's now going to discuss these people who did not abide forever, but instead abandoned this church, this group of Christians. So he continues writing in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, this is a passage. I'm just going to cut to the chase here and be frank. This is a passage which should frighten and which should deeply concern anyone who thinks that they don't need to be involved in attending and serving in a local church. And further, this should deeply concern anyone who has followed or worse, continues to follow a teacher who has walked away from the church or from Christianity as a whole. And believe me, there are plenty of them. There are plenty of them. One just uh, moved to the Oprah Network, by the way. Now, why do you say that I, why, why do I say that I should, uh, or that we should be concerned? Because John refers to these people as antichrists. I don't know if there's a worse term to give to somebody. Now, you can, you can call me every name in the book. I've, I've probably heard it before. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I used to work in a casino. I was a dealer. I've been called everything, that, stuff that you guys haven't even thought of yet. But I, I've been called every name in the book, and, and I really won't be too bothered by it. But I can assure you that if you call me the Antichrist, yeah, that, that's, throwing down the, that's throwing down the gauntlet. Uh, that's something that would, that would bother me uh, and, and cause me to examine myself and to either challenge or, or accept that, uh, that assertion and change accordingly. But this is a title that John gives to these people who left them. Now, the, the Greek prefix anti uh, actually means the same thing that it means in the English, uh, if we say we're anti-something, it means that we're against something or we're opposed to something. But in Greek, it can also include um, the meaning in place of or equal to. Now, we should be quick to note, by the way, that John uses this term in two different ways. He uses it in, as a singular noun and then immediately after that uh, as, a, as a plural noun. One is a proper noun, a, a, an official title for a person, for an individual, uh, and the other describes a group. Uh, used singularly, uh, the Antichrist, singular, is the great enemy of God who will attempt to usurp God's place and will proclaim himself to be God when he takes a seat in the temple one day. He'll force everyone, he'll try to force everyone on earth to worship him, and the penalty for refusing to worship him will be death. Just before Jesus returns for the second coming, this Antichrist will arise. He'll be an evil man who is seeking to do the will of Satan as Satan's tool. That is Antichrist singular. Antichrists, in the plural sense, on the other hand, are not to be confused with 
the Antichrist. When used in a plural sense, it's different. It refers to the vast number of people throughout history who deny the essential doctrines of Christianity, especially those pertaining to the person and the work of Christ, or they seek to simply lead people away from the faith. In other words, they oppose all that Christ is and all that Christ has accomplished in his work. It is essentially another term for fallen man, apart from God's sovereign work of redemption and regeneration. And so John makes it clear that this last hour is characterized by there being many antichrists, many people opposed to Christ, many people thinking they are equal to Christ, all these things. He says there are many, and that might be the biggest understatement in the entire Bible. There's a lot of speculation, though, about whether or not we're living in the last days, and that's a question that, as a pastor, I get from time to time. I've had it emailed to me because of the podcasts that I do uh, more frequently than than I've been asked in person. But when people ask me this question, are are we living in the last days, my answer uh, is yes, Um, but that usually doesn't mean exactly what people think uh, it means, so I have to clarify Uh, the last hour or the last days began 2,000 years ago, and it'll continue until the day that Christ returns. So do I believe that Christ will return in our lifetime? John seems to have thought that Christ could return in his lifetime. Do I think that Christ could return in my lifetime? Of course I believe that he could, But Jesus warned us about trying to guess or trying to speculate as to when he would return, telling us that we could not know the day or the hour of his return. And just to be clear, we can't know the year, we can't know the month or the minute or the second. We can't know anything else about it either, about when it might come. The point of all prophetic scripture is not to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back, but to live with the constant expectation that he is coming back, and therefore to be ready, to live in a manner that's ready. If he were to come back right now and catch me doing this sin, how would I feel? Oh, I'd better not sin. Kind of like that. But Christianity has not only survived but it's thrived for 2,000 years. For these 2,000 years that we refer to as the last days or the last hour. And during the 2,000 years that Christianity has existed, it has faced numerous threats to its existence and its well-being. And that, I think, helps me, anyway, uh, believe that Christianity is entirely true. Uh, because I'm convinced that if Christianity were not true, it would have died a long time ago. It would have been gone centuries ago without the supernatural blessing and providence of God sustaining it, keeping it going. The church would have been swept away by false, worldly, carnal ideologies. We call those things heresies. It's literally a miracle. That is, it's literally a work of God that the church has not been led astray into some other doctrine, some other humanistic religion or ideology. 
And so while John is referring in the immediate context here primarily to false teachers, there's a principle that applies to all of us that we can find here, a principle which can help us to either gain biblical assurance of our salvation or to perhaps lessen the confidence that we may justifiably have in our salvation, depending on which way we fall on this one. And that is that the legitimate Christian will abide within the scope of orthodox, historic doctrines of the Christian faith, and they will remain within regular, continued fellowship with God's people. If we don't remain within the scope of orthodox doctrine, orthodox belief, and or if we don't abide in regular fellowship with other believers, we have good reason for some concern. So the implication here is is pretty simple. It's this. If you don't feel like you are starving to death when you're not being fed, then maybe you weren't alive to begin with. This should be a sobering splash of reality in the face of someone who thinks that they don't need the body of Christ. They don't need to be in fellowship with other Christians. They don't need to be regularly engaging in worship, teaching, and community within the context of a local church. And I don't just say this because I'm a pastor. I say this because Scripture affirms it, and my own personal experience affirms that I went through a season where I tried to walk away from the church, and believe me, I was spiritually starving. I couldn't grow. You can't grow unless you're in the context of a community of believers. You see, salvation isn't just a simple act of the human will in which we decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to submit to God just kind of out of the blue by our own personal volition, our own decision, our own ability to do what is right and what is good and what is pure and righteous. Rather, it's God's work in us transforming us from a totally depraved creature who cannot do anything pleasing to God and has no desire to live for God or to please God, transforming us into a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we have to remember that with the new nature that God has given us, we will have new desires. We will have new affections. We will have new needs. Before God, in his mercy, made us born again, we were spiritually dead. As spiritually dead people, we didn't see our need for God. We didn't have a sense of uh, any need to study God's word. And we definitely had no desire to spend time with God's people. If you know my testimony of how I, you know, where I became a Christian, I went to an evangelical free church because I thought, oh, there are no evangelicals there. That sounds great. I don't like I didn't I didn't like Christians at the time so I thought yeah this sounds like a church for me well guess what god had other plans in mind as spiritually dead people the, jesus made it clear the world hated him first and so the world is also going to hate his people these are all things that changed for every one of us when god gave us spiritual life and gave us a new nature now, I should be quick to clarify and say that I'm not saying that going to church makes somebody a Christian any more than, you know, going to the grocery store and spending time in the produce aisle makes you a mango. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So let me ask you this. Is going to church a work? Is going to church a work? Yeah, it is. It's me doing something on my own. And if there are both tares and wheat in the church, then even people who are not Christians can decide to go to church. So if going to church is a work, can it save us? No, it cannot. And so that is certainly not what John is saying here. Instead, we have to understand that John is telling us that the reason we remain in fellowship with other Christians and the reason that we remain within the scope of orthodox doctrine is not to be Christians, but it's because we're Christians. It's because we have the new nature. It's not in order that we can receive it. It's because God has regenerated us and he has replaced the old nature, the fallen nature, with a new nature. So what do we say about people who permanently break fellowship with the church or whose doctrine strays and stays outside of the scope of orthodox Christian doctrine and belief? Truthfully, it's not our place to judge their salvation. We cannot do that. Only God can see the heart. However, John is telling us here that there is a very real danger that they were never truly saved to begin with. That's the implication here. These Gnostics who had left this church high and dry, the church that John's writing to, they were never truly Christians to begin with. They may profess to be Christians, but they are antichrists. And you cannot be both. Just like light cannot be darkness, and those who are saved, those who are spiritual, cannot be carnal. You can't be in both. You can't just straddle the fence on this one. You're one or the other. And John says, the reason they left us is to show that they were never part of us to begin with. They may profess to be Christians, but they are antichrists who one day will cry unto the Lord, 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 did we not do all these things? And he'll say to them, I never knew from you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And there are many who have tried to assert that these Gnostics were simply apostates. That is, um, they had been real legitimate converted Christians at some point, but they had decided to walk away from God, in essence, surrendering or or forfeiting their salvation. And I have no idea how they get to that conclusion when when I look at this. I don't see this implication anywhere in John's words, not even close. He's pretty clear here. John says that the reason they left is because they were never one of us to begin with. Now, there's something of an in-house debate as to the nature of salvation and whether or not it can be lost. Uh, And when I refer to it as an in-house debate, what I mean is that there's debate among true Christians, people who are all 
genuinely converted, all of whom have perfectly good intentions of simply being true to the scriptures, who have different uh, views on whether or not salvation can be lost. Some will say that scripture teaches that we can lose our salvation, while others will argue that we cannot lose our salvation. But I, I want to say this up front, whichever side you fall on, whichever side a, a legitimate Christian falls on, on this issue doesn't make them any more or any less of a Christian. To their demise, Many churches in our culture will affirm the once saved, always saved position because they believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of works. And so therefore, if a person has no good works to speak of, all that matters is that once upon a time, they made a profession of faith in Christ at some point in their life. And to that I say, yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone, by the way. But to say that all that matters is some type of profession of faith at some point once upon a time, which hasn't brought about a lasting and ongoing transformation of the individual, is in error. Those who would say, well, you just make a profession of faith and it doesn't matter what happens after that, That reveals a supremely poor understanding of the nature of salvation and the relationship between faith and works. Now, just to be clear, good works don't save us. On that, I think everybody, no matter which side of the the spectrum you fall on, everybody agrees with this. Good works cannot save us. However, good works do have a purpose. And one of those purposes is that they are evidence of something deeper. They are evidence of the new, regenerated, born-again nature. Scripture clearly teaches that legitimate faith will result in certain actions or works on the behalf of the individual. But we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. That's why James said, faith without works is dead. And so further, Scripture clearly teaches that the true child of God If they attempt to go astray, whether they attempt to break fellowship with a group of individuals, uh, a body of believers, or they fall astray into some weird doctrine that is outside of the scope of traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine, God will discipline them. God will discipline them. He will provide the means necessary to bring his sheep back into the fold when they wander astray. And so with all of this said, I don't think that it's any surprise, most likely, to any of you that I believe that Scripture clearly teaches that we cannot lose our salvation if, it's a big if, if we were truly a Christian to begin with. Let me ask this question to to kind of begin a brief discussion of this issue. Does God, when he saves us, Does God give us a new nature? Or does he let us keep the old nature and he just covers it with a bunch of grace? But it's still there. Which of those things does he do? I think scripture clearly teaches that upon regeneration, when we are born again, we have a new nature. The Lord spoke of what was at the time a future new covenant with the prophet uh, Ezekiel. He told us through, uh, through Ezekiel about this 
covenant that we have in Christ. God tells us that under the new covenant, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I think it's pretty clear here that we have an entirely new nature, a new heart, so to speak, and that God, that God is telling us about through the prophet Ezekiel. This is not just an abundance of grace being poured out over an old, dead, fallen, sinful nature. There is grace. There is grace. There's an abundance of grace. But there is also a new nature. Now, if it were a case of God leaving the old nature there and just covering it with grace, it would seem as though, yeah, maybe a person could lose their salvation. Maybe somebody really could be converted to Christianity and just decide that they're going to just walk away and, and forfeit their salvation. They, all they have to do is just stop believing. But this is clearly not the case. Our old nature is dead and gone. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. The new has come. So we have to understand that salvation isn't found in the act of a wicked and sinful person deciding that they want to turn to God, thankfully, Because if salvation were found by a wicked, sinful person deciding to turn to God, deciding to look for God and and do good for God, none of us, none of us would receive it if we take Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 18 seriously. Neither is salvation found in, in a smooth you know, smooth-talking gospel presentation that a Christian who's memorized the four spiritual laws is able to make. Paul made it clear to the Corinthians that he was anything but a smooth talker. He didn't flatter them. He, he, he wasn't a great public speaker. His presentation skills were certainly lacking. No, salvation is the result of God's work in regenerating us, giving us a new nature in the new birth. We can no more be unborn again spiritually than a person can be unborn physically. Now you can choose to you can you can choose to end your life physically but that doesn't do anything with your nature. It doesn't change your nature. Whereas spiritually there is a new nature. It can't be undone. This is a doctrine which has traditionally been referred to as the perseverance of the saints. That's a word perseverance is a word that I get a little bit uneasy with just because, uh, you know, if, if I were to interpret it to mean that we're saved as long as we persevere in our faithfulness to God, uh, it sounds like it's all resting on me. Uh, but I tend to prefer the term preservation of the saints because it's God's work, it's God's faithfulness to us that ensures our salvation. If our salvation were up to us, if holding on to it were up to us, if we were able to just surrender it, walk away from it, lose it, none of us would hold on to it. As John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And I believe that. I think that's what Scripture clearly teaches. See, it's not as though God has just 
delivered us from the penalty of sin. He has done that. But that's not all he's done. That's called the doctrine of justification, by the way. And then he abandons us. It's not like he he then just abandons us to our own pleasures, our own directions, our own desires. God doesn't save us and then say, great, well, glad that that's done. I'll move on to the next person. You're on your own. I'll see you when we get to heaven. That's not what he says. That's not what he does. Now, Scripture teaches that those who are justified will be sanctified. That is, justification is the start, but it's not the finish of God's work in us. If you want to liken it to a race, justification is kind of like the starting line of a marathon, a race that he runs with us each and every step of the way. And this marathon would be like sanctification. Justification is God removing us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is God removing us from the power of sin. And glorification, which will come when we stand before Christ one day, glorification removes us from the presence of sin. But our sanctification is evidence of our justification. And the word that Paul uses to describe us as new creations is God's workmanship. He says we're God's workmanship. And whenever I hear this, I I love this term because I I get this really clear mental image. I, I think of myself as kind of just this ugly, decrepit block of wood that a carpenter might select. And he puts it in a vise and he cranks it and he starts whittling away at it piece by piece by piece and he whittles it down into something that he finds beautiful and he finds more useful with every single piece he whittles away. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created for, not by, created for good works in Christ, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God doesn't. Upon justification, he doesn't just give us a new nature and walk away from us. He doesn't give us a new nature and just leave us alone, leave us be. Rather, he continues to work on us. And note what Paul says here. He he doesn't say that we were God's workmanship. That would be scary if if he did, because I'd feel like I'm a finished product, and that's not good. That's not good for anybody. He says we are God's workmanship. It's ongoing. It's going, every, it's going every second, every day. God is working, causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, and that includes all of his children. Everything, God is working together for the good of his people. Knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us, is what gave Paul the confidence to believe that he who began a good work in us will work to complete it. If salvation could be lost, what would that say about God? What would that say about God? I'll tell you what it would say about God. It would demonstrate to everyone that God is not able on his own to finish the work that he begins. Or it says that God didn't know that this person would walk away. And there you have a God who doesn't know all things, and that's a scary God. 
That's not the God of the Bible. No, God is before all things. He's after all things. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. If salvation could be lost, it wouldn't say anything worse about us than we already are, but it would say something about God not being able to finish what he starts, either not being able or not being willing, and there's no good option there. Because God's work is all for God's glory, and because salvation is his work, even the weakest, even the faintest of his people will be preserved in their faith, lest anyone so foolishly believe that God is unable to complete or unwilling to complete the work that he begins. You see, our salvation is for our good, without a doubt. But more than that, it is for God's glory. Everything that God does is done to reveal his might, to reveal his greatness, to reveal his glory. And the reason that salvation cannot and will not fail is that because ultimately it's not about us and it doesn't rest on us. That is, it doesn't demonstrate our power or our faithfulness to God. Salvation is a demonstration of his power and his faithfulness to us. The point in all of this is that the true Christian must remain in fellowship with God. And that will be demonstrated. That will be evidenced by God's continued ongoing work in the person through, first of all, the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, by the power of his words and uh, his word in our lives as we continue to study it and we continue to grow in our understanding and our application of it. And number three, through the experience and spiritual nourishment of worshiping, learning, and having fellowship within the context of a local church. Those who make a profession of faith and yet abandon the faith and the fellowship of the saints, they, they haven't just gone back to who they were before. Rather, those who abandon the faith or walk away from the, the church and don't come back, only to, to never return, all they do is demonstrate that they were never truly converted to begin with. Yes, God preserves the faith of those he saves. They will persevere in their faith, in their doctrine, in their fellowship with fellow believers. Trials and hardships will come. We may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but the good shepherd sees his sheep to the other side. He sees them to the mountaintops from the valleys. Though we may go through storms, the storm is not in us. God sees to it that no one takes his sheep from his hand. He preserves his people in their faith. He doesn't just preserve us, he also transforms us. He strengthens us. He sustains us. He blesses us. And he disciplines us, not out of his wrath, but out of his loving care for us. So we can be confident and have an increased sense of assurance that God will complete the work that he has begun in us, not only because we've made a profession of faith at some point in our lives. I'm not saying that that's not important. It is. But because we can see that God continues to work in us, to change us, to transform us, 
to mold us and to prune us, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that doesn't mean that being a Christian is a walk in the park. It's certainly not. No, the process of pruning can be extremely painful. But when you get through it and you look back, it is glorious to be pruned. It is glorious to be pruned and disciplined by God in order that we may grow, in order that we may bear more fruit. And this is no, by no means to say, by the way, that we can be justified in just giving up on those who just walk away from the church, leave the church once they graduate from high school and, and enter into young adulthood. To the contrary, we have to make every effort to bring them back. In fact, this might be a good passage, the passage that we're covering today. It might be a good passage to share with a person who demonstrates no sense of concern for growing in their faith or in their walk with Jesus. And so thus they they rarely or or maybe never come to church. We should be brokenhearted for these people. We should pray for these people. We have to try to reason with these people. As long as they have a heartbeat, anything's possible with God. As long as they have a heartbeat, we have to continue to make ourselves available to them. Having a broken heart for the lost, by the way, or or for those who have left the church, I believe is also part of the new nature because our desires are being shaped to those of God. And I believe that God desires for those who leave the church to come back and to find life in him. At the same time, however, while, while we have to be concerned about those people who have left the church or maybe who have never come to church, but in, in this passage, those who have left the church, we have to ensure first and foremost that we are following through on this ourselves. You see, there are some people out there who have become so concerned with those who are lost or so concerned with the, the 75% who have left the church that they've joined them. And I just find this to be, it makes no sense. It just makes no sense. There's one author of a a well-known, best-selling book that I think was made into a movie a couple years ago. Uh, The book was filled with heresies, uh, but he openly admits that he rarely goes to church anymore. Another well-known author says, quote, I've come to the conclusion from my experience with organized religion that I have to leave, that I have to, in the name of Christ, step away from this. End quote. So that's, that's not good either. That's, that's not the option. You, 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 don't, you don't stop taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. It, it, it doesn't work this way. It doesn't make any sense. This doesn't glorify or honor Christ. You can't reach out to the lost and help the lost by joining them. And I get, I, I get it. You know, church can be really uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes it can, you know, if people get burned sometimes when they come into a fellowship. They get hurt. They get emotionally wounded. I get it. I get that sometimes it's as stinky as Noah's Ark must have been. But what happens if you jump off of Noah's Ark? You drown. Endure the stink or drown. 
And you can't help another drowning person if you yourself are drowning. All you can do is drag them down with you. It really is as simple as that. Listen, God has saved us as individuals, but he has designed us to discover and to fulfill our individual personal callings within the context of a community of Christian fellowship. Let me say that again. God has saved us as individuals, but he's designed us to discover and to fulfill our personal callings within the context of a community of Christian fellowship. And so for that reason, we have to keep ourselves healthy. We have to keep ourselves growing in our walk with the Lord by spending time with God in prayer, by spending time in God's word, and by spending time with God's people. We're created for these things. We're created with a need for these things. We're strengthened and we're encouraged to grow by these things. And we don't do them out of a sense of obligation. Oh, I, I, I got to go to church because I'm a Christian. I, I got to study the Bible because I'm a Christian. You know, like whatever. You know, we, we don't do these things out of a sense of obligation. We do them because we know. We know that they provide us with the spiritual nourishment that a healthy, thriving person both needs and craves. Our salvation is for God's glory and it's for our good. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. He's working to save us from the power of sin. Through his work, we're purified and God is glorified. We become more like him and he gets the glory for it. In light of that truth, Let us surrender ourselves more fully to him in joy. There's some contrarian thinking for you. Surrender in joy. We were listening to a song the other day where they talked about that, and we thought, wow, that's that's pretty radical to surrender joyfully. And let us be confident and know that whoever does the will of God abides forever and receives an imperishable eternal reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he paid the penalty of our sin in order that we could be reconciled to you by your grace, through faith, in your Son. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see the evidence of your work within us, individually and collectively. We pray for your discipline, just like we pray for your blessing, realizing that sometimes they're one and the same. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to become more like Jesus, more like your Son, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours. And Lord, in the silence of our hearts, we lift up those before you who have walked away from the church who have strayed from orthodox, true doctrine and who haven't come back. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in them. Give us a broken heart for the lost and for those who have left the faith. That you would be glorified. That they would be justified. 
for your glory. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.